You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we talk to Berke Attila, Director, Department of General Services of Baltimore City. He shares some of the key technology challenges Baltimore City encounters, how they balance IT modernization efforts with the need to maintain and upgrade existing systems, and some challenges, as well as some of the unique benefits city governments face when it comes to data and adopting emerging technologies. Stay tuned. and welcome to the Gup Future Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer. And we have had many great interviews on Gup Future Forum so far this year. I know that so many of you provided feedback. You've enjoyed a lot of our interviews with folks in federal uh, agencies here in the U.S., uh, civilian and defense. But we've had a lot of state and local as well. And some of those are some of our most interesting ones because we have folks who are working in public sector agencies dealing with a lot of the challenges that well, every agency is working with no matter your size or scale, trying to adopt uh, new technologies, emerging technologies in the face of constant change, right? Uh, but with limited resources, that's what's the unique uh, sign of local and city governments and local agencies is just having the same problems, but just with less people and money to deal with it. So uh, we have to approach these challenges. So I think for those of you who are listening to the Gov Future podcast for the first time, uh, this is a great place to hear from uh, public sector thought leaders about how they're adopting transformative technology and key conversations on key topics that help focus our listeners and our Gov Future members learn the latest innovations and best practices to stay ahead of innovation in the public sector. And so, as Ron mentioned, we really do love to have folks from all levels of government because we can learn so much uh, from, you know, federal, state and local. And at GovFuture Forum, we really do try and bring together thought leaders from all different sectors of government. So for today's podcast, we're so excited to have with us Berke Attila, who is Director Department of General Services at Baltimore City Government. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really like to be part of the Gov Future podcast series. Yeah, and we're so excited for this wonderful discussion today. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at Baltimore City Government. Absolutely. So again, my name is Berke Atila. My current role is the Director of Department of General Services for City of Baltimore. And um, I'm, I was born and raised in Turkey, Istanbul, and I've emigrated to Baltimore in 2002 to proceed of my uh, business because I'm a trained engineer. I came here to pursue my MBA, uh, to switch from being an engineer to management, and I worked for uh, multiple years in private industry where I realized that there was something missing. And when I looked deep in it, that the bottom line profit chasing, the revenue driven aspect of the private industry was the problem for me. So when the opportunity came before me to join the city of Baltimore uh, budget office as an analyst, um, I jumped on it. And I've been in the government public space since 2011. I grew up the ranks of the city of Baltimore government. I had a little bit of a hiatus for three years 
as I became the director of human resources for the Montgomery County in Maryland. And the new administration in the city of Baltimore tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I would like to lead the Department of General Services for the city of Baltimore. So a little bit of what we do. We call it ourselves sometimes Department of Generic Services because we do everything that is behind doors supporting all of our customer-facing agencies. What we do is we manage and maintain all of the vertical assets, namely facilities. We also um, deal with the city's energy management, um, procuring management of it, and as well as all of the mobile assets. Our fleet has about 5,000 pieces of assets that we procure and maintain and replace. It could range all the way from a golf cart to Zamboni or a, a large fireboat that supports the Coast Guard. So what we do help everybody else to do their jobs, whether that you're a revenue collector sitting in a building that we ensure that you're in a safe environment or you're a police officer driving a patrol car that we ensure that it is working for you. So uh, it is really a support agency to the, the backbone operations of the city of Baltimore. And I'm glad to be the director of the department. Yeah, fantastic. Well, having lived in the city of Baltimore, <laughs> I'm sure I have yeah. benefited from many of those general services. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that's really very interesting because I know, I, well, I mean, I know a bit about Baltimore as Kathleen does as well. We both have had some experiences before our listeners. You know, Baltimore is an interesting city. It's an old city. It's been around for a long time. Previously was, I think, one of the top seven or eight largest cities in the U.S., although you have to go back a while for that uh, statistic. And I know that, you know, like many large uh, cities that have uh, been old and have maybe had some older tech, you know, economies had powered it, had, has faced some shrinkage, right? You know, the population Absolutely. once was like well over a million or something like that. Now it's in the 600, something like that. So, uh, but of course the city hasn't shrunk, you know, it's still the same geographic size. So you got to deal with all of that infrastructure that's in there. I'm sure it makes your life very interesting. Uh, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about that, because if we think about infrastructure from things like plumbing and pipes and wires and all sorts of stuff, but the infrastructure applies to technology as well, right? So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about some of those key technology challenges that the that Baltimore City encounters and how you balance modernizing many of those IT systems and their efforts with the need to, the need to keep them running and maintained and upgrade and all that sort of good stuff. Well, first of all, I want to take around for recognizing the challenges of Baltimore being an old city um, and having a really good infrastructure in terms of water infrastructure. Our like, renowned able woman built the, the Chesapeake watershed water infrastructure in a beautiful way, but now it's getting 100 years old and the, the replacement is due. So we are really dealing with those old and fragile infrastructures and a shrinking population where the, the decisions have to be made in really tough environments. And in terms of the um, realm of the government technology resources, I mean, whether financial, human or technological, um, are always finite, as you said, right? And um, I would like to date back to a, a specific incident that I believe it changed the IT modernization and technology adaptation very drastically in terms of how we think and approach, and it was the ransomware attack. I think it highlighted, as you all know, Baltimore was subject to a ransomware attack around 2019. And we we kind of had that wake-up call about how we need to go around and think about prioritization of our technology. It really highlighted the need for a more strategic approach to allocating to these resources. Unfortunately, we learned the hard way that investing in cybersecurity and modern infrastructure isn't just beneficial, 
but it is essential. It is very important. So learning from the ransomware attack was, a, again, was a pivotal moment for us. It brought light to our vulnerabilities in our systems. We had been working with lots of legacy systems in terms of um, billing, payroll, everything was legacy. And it forced us to really enhance our cybersecurity measures post-attack. We dramatically strengthened our posture um, and we moved into changing most of our um, IT thinking. Uh, let me tell you this. Prior to ransomware, IT infrastructure wasn't even part of the capital planning. We didn't think about these things just like they, they, they need refresh cycles. We need to invest long-term capital monies to replace all of these assets. So number one, bigger change. What happened? We invited IT um, to the, the capital design process. Nice. And I've, I've told our CIO, welcome to the Hunger Games. Now you have to really prove what you need to do. Um, and legacy systems and modernization since then, um, the city have um, gone into enterprise uh, updates and we were embarked on the journey to bring Workday and we have been doing in phases. We improved our uh, billing system. So one one thing that it was previously finite resources had to go other places. Now IT has a big role in balancing those resources. It was a wake up call for us. Yeah, and you know, we like that you know, you bring real world experience into your answer because I, I think that a lot of governments are dealing with this. And, you know, as as we said, your population can change, it grows, it shrinks, and but yet your challenges can uh remain the same, you know, and and you have limited resources. So this leads me to my next question, too, talking about challenges that, you know, especially city and local governments that they face around both adopting emerging technologies and maybe, you know, identifying even where to begin with some of these efforts when you, you know, want to do everything but only have limited resources. Well, I'll, I'll bring two perspectives to it. One, I can speak broadly where the city uh, in terms of data management challenges and adapting emerging technologies, but also I would like to give maybe specific examples in how we deal with our own microcosm here. So I believe the biggest challenge for data management is what we call the data silos. One of the biggest hurdles is breaking down those silos. In many city governments, and I worked in multiple jurisdictions, um, most of the time, different departments often operate independently which can be tied to not improving the legacy systems so that they don't speak to one another and everybody, because we're not centrally budgeting and planning for IT infrastructure, everybody had their uh, had to find their own monies and solutions to deal with their own data solutions. So as an enterprise, it's created a very siloed um, place and in fragmenting data systems, they don't communicate with each other. So integrating these systems to kind of enable a um, unified view of data is a significant challenge, but I believe the, the city of Baltimore is doing a, doing a much better job now. And obviously the quality and the accessibility of data, we all know the junk in, junk out methodology. You need to ensure that what comes in and the quality is really up there and making it easily accessible for decision-making is a key challenge for us. But we're, well, you need to be very accurate, up-to-date and comprehensive we do have um, one of the early on performance management systems adapted is called the city stat. And what we say in the city stat is that gathering timely and accurate information for all. So that's our motto that's, that drives us to be able to bring different, different information 
together. What we used to do in the past, we would go at each agency and specifically talk about their needs. What would happen is you would talk about the, the Department of Public Works, and then you might hear they may have fleet-related challenges because they don't have enough load factors they might put on the street, and then you would meet with the police and the fire department, and then they may talk about their fleet needs, but we wouldn't be at the same table. So what we realize now, rather than talking to specific siloed departments, let's talk about um, what we call like a clean stat. So anybody that needs to clean the city or the public safety stat. So bring all those agencies along with the support agencies. It might be human resources because there may be salary challenges that brings uh, people up to date. It might be procurement related challenges that we're getting not contracts in place, or it could be fleet related challenges, but everybody can hear at the same time. So attempt to break down the silos of the data um, is not just technological improvement, but how you approach as a management to those challenges by bringing people to talk about it. And in my opinion, the challenges in adopting emerging technologies have um, three pillars. One, resource constraints. Obviously, we talked about it. You know, technology goes a lot faster right. and you just need to be very proactive about budgeting for it. Human, which is the skill gaps. You cannot replace your employees with newer, better people. You just need to uplift your people. So understand where the new technology is. And we're, we're at the, the onset of the generative AI coming in and how we're going to uh, upskill our people to bridge those gaps. And the third one, I think, is a common denominator across all government, but specifically for the local government, is the procurement and the bureaucracy around it. All of the things that the, the process in the public sector agencies has to endure this lengthy and complex slowing down technology adaptation is, is, is one, one of the challenges, I think, in my opinion, biggest uh, problem that is in adopting the technologies. Yeah, that's a common criticism for government in general, not just city and state and local, but like this idea that, uh, you know, government's a slow adopter, complicated, cumbersome procurement process, right? People often think of federal processes, but like, hey, it goes all the way down to the city level. Sometimes it's even worse. I, I, I think I recall issues and challenges even even in Baltimore going to back to the phone system when that required some sort of upgrade <laughs> challenges there. So, uh, you know, but I think this is opportunity, right? <clears throat> Whenever Absolutely. Like this, and we're all trying. We all know the value of data and building data-driven organizations, which means that there has to be systems to collect that data and analyze that data. I mean, this is IT we're talking about here, right? It's an centrality of technology in making all of our systems more uh, usable, also enabling self-service and all the things we want to do. You know, people are, you know, we, we live our lives on our phone and the internet, so that's kind of what we want from government these days. So maybe sort of bringing that in a little bit about automation, because we've heard sort of the value proposition in terms of trying to get some of these automation technologies into, especially ones where we did have people-based processes or paper-based processes or time-based processes. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what Baltimore uh, City has done there and maybe some of the future directions around automation. Absolutely. Um, I've been in the automation space because I'm a, I'm a lazy hard worker. I always believe that there's a if there's a better, faster way to do the work, we should do it that way. That allows us to be able to do other value-added tasks. And um, I've been spending a lot of gray matter with my organization in um, robotic process automation, RPA, um, which is the, maybe the, the, the beginnings of um, embracing the power of automation, a very easy step in. Because in my opinion, it represents a significant leap in how the city governments or local governments can approach routine tasks. 
by simulating um, human interactions with the software. So you don't really need to be super specific. If you can teach an RPA, which is now almost low to no code, or aching to if you know how to record macros in Excel by letting the system watch what you do and learn from it. So it's one of the easiest ways to break in the automation world. And if you're especially a Microsoft shop like we are, we are an Office 365 organization, Microsoft came with a Power Automate which we've taken this concept and brought to life through um, our systems. And the goal, uh, and the, I'm sorry, the tool is particularly well-suited for our needs, providing um, automating wide ranges of tasks from memorizing to invoice generation. If there's a truly repetitive task that you execute the same thing, but a different vendor, you have to do the 250 times to send the aging invoices or parts that the system can automate that. That way, we believe, um, we enhance productivity that um, you, we call it just automate the boring tasks, right? That way, and even the data analysis, if you can automate the, the gathering, the information for you, that you could spend your zero sum amount of time more on the analysis and less on the gathering. But what you need to do in order to break any of these barriers, I think the thought leaders need to understand the need, understand there is a curve that we need to go over, and then that curve is steep, but once you're at the summit, then it's coasting down very good. But you need to exert that energy up front. And if you do not allow staff time to be able to learn and grow, being very intentional about that, to show them this is going to be painful now how to do it and how to learn it. But once we figure out, it's going to pay perpetual dividends downstream because you never have to do this task again and you could use your time somewhere else. So again, automation in itself without the proper selling and the training and allocation of time and support from the executive leader, it's not going to go anywhere. We, we saw that. You can deploy any kind of fancy tool if the staff doesn't have the time, doesn't have the skills of training, they're not going to bring it. But once one group starts chewing up on them and then start learning, and producing, and then their time's freed up, it spreads like a wildfire because everybody, I want some of that. How do I get there? So it is it is a really a good one, almost like a golden goose. Once you get to that, it's, it's wonderful to, to enjoy. And I'm very excited about what the generative AI is going to bring to this world because it's going to make it a lot, a lot easier. Yeah, you know, it's nice that you talk about that top-down approach because I think automation has so much potential for many different applications, for roles, you know, across government. But you really do need to make sure that at the end of the day, the users feel comfortable using it and that they don't feel threatened by the technology. Because if they do in any way, they're not going to use it. And then why did you invest all of this money, time and resources just for people to not use the technology? So that is really great insight. And it's, you know, a trend that we see through throughout all of government, right? It doesn't matter where people work. I think that they really do need to feel that top down approach. So Nice to see that you've you've seen that and that you address that and know that that is a real issue. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, you know, another thing that we talk about whenever we talk about any government agency at any level, data is always brought up, right? The amount of data that we have, how we access, how we store it, you know, everything related to data, data governance. Uh, so the you know local governments have some unique benefits to data that maybe other agencies don't have other you know broader um because you have access to so much of it 
So can you share with us maybe some of the unique benefits that you've seen to data with working at um, a local government? Absolutely. And you're, you're on point, Kathleen, the proximity to the data sources for local governments are inherently different than close to our data. So I think what makes the local governments different than um, federal and state, which they also have lots of data, we, the, the community and the infrastructure, our proximity allows for real-time collection and a deeper understanding of the dynamics, and uh, I think which is invaluable for responsiveness and effective governance. But making sense out of that proximity of the data sources could be challenging and sometimes paralyzing. So because it's so abundant, we cannot make the connections and then we stay in our silos. The data that we have is incredibly rich and varied, whether through our service requests, like 311 systems where people are calling us for potholes, tree stumps, um, water main breaks. We, we could collect crime data. We could get a lot of health data. And that would allow us to be able to, like, let, let's talk about this. Um, we have a shrinking population problem. But no neighborhood completely shrunk in a situation where we can cut off that. There are people still living in there. You still need to uh, provide clean water. You still need to sweep the streets. You need to still collect collect the information and then blow the leaves that are falling. So population, SR data, route optimization combined together, we, we could get to figure out where we need to deploy our limited resources, where most of the most of the people... We could take traffic data to see what car corridors are just really being traveled fast. And then we don't do the street sweeping that day because they cannot park around it. So, um, and where we want to figure out food deserts are so we can, we can deploy um, mobile government services there. So all of this is data that comes from many multiple layers of um, siloed data that needs to put it in a smart system for us to start analyzing. That's, that's, and, you know, again, data collected and analyzed at the local level has a direct impact on the quality and the efficiency that our services provided to the residents directly. This is different than the federal funding, the state funding, the local. We can make that the, the, the richness of the data to a direct advantage to provide a specific solution to a problem much faster, which is fascinating and actually um, motivating to work for a local government. Yeah, you can see those results pretty uh, clearly and, and literally in your backyard. So <clears throat> it's not like you're solving a problem for somewhere else. So that's that's really very important. And, and we mentioned, obviously, the criticality of data to make all this work. We're sort of in the data-driven present, the future, whatever we are right now. <laughs> We're kind of in the AI-driven future world. But <clears throat> one of the challenges, of course, of data, of course, is protecting that data. And as we all know, uh, cybersecurity, which... I guess might have seemed like uh, an option or something, you know, now is an absolute necessity. Right. And you talked a little about silos earlier, which is interesting because um, maybe, maybe still for, just for some cybersecurity feels like a thing we do in addition to other things, but cybersecurity is really kind of, it's not really in its own silo. It's like, if I'm going to do analytics, I need to think about cybersecurity. If I can do AI, I got to think about cybersecurity. If I'm going to do IOT, <clears throat> any of these activities, right. I have to think about security and so really it's all kind of comes kind of hand in hand here. So maybe maybe talk a little bit about, about security in the context of data, also compliance, regulatory, the things that you have to do as a city to maintain stewardship of that data, all the all the there's a lot of stuff tied up into that. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And if nothing else, what we learned in the ransomware and the post-ransomware 
the, the most important aspect of cybersecurity or any security is the employee training. Because you could have the most secure systems that they, if the employees are not trained, they don't know what to do. They will be vulnerable to a phishing attack, saving an attachment, and making the entire system very vulnerable to many other things. So number one thing is figuring out how to deploy really good training to everyone, make it easy to understand, and then make it more frequent. And it, it needs to be adaptable for anyone at any platform, any given time, they can, they can take it and make sure that there's a huge compliance around that um, training module for everyone. Regardless of your level, you need to be trained constantly. And it is repetitive because you need that muscle memory to not make the mistake. And sometimes we even do targeted phishing attacks internally to see if the cat is going to bite. And then we then report back just like how many people in your department actually clicked on a, on a phishing attempt. So employee training is obviously the, 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 the number one. Encryption of the data is quite important and who has access. Access control and authentication, definitely the basics of just like ensuring just like using an authenticator or a multi-step authentication um, and regular security audits, the systems, who is accessing, um, who is not accessing, ensuring that HR and IT department and user departments are working in very good tandem lockstep because I'll give you an example. I am in charge of the city's fueling stations for our employees. It could be a person that drives for the Rec and Parks Forestry, so a patrol officer for a police department. We have multiple fueling sites. Some of them are unmanned, and you have can sievers in the cars that you could plug it in, and it tells you which car you're driving. It takes mileage data, usage data. And in the back end, the system can tell me if you drove there and then filled up your tank, and if you drove at 30 minutes after, you filled up again, and then you only drove a mile, it gives us a flag because that wheel is like, that might be a theft because you brought somebody else, you're using your fuel access card. We can catch that because the system can automatically lock it and requires a phone call to open it up. So that's one thing. However, if I do not know that person, for example, have been terminated and their exit interview, they did not understand that person had access to a fuel card and then never taken back. So now, again, it comes back down to people and your your training you need to train hr people to say just like i cannot know with the fifteen thousand employees on timely manner if you have terminated someone who may have access to fuel systems so how do you develop these really boring mundane systems to just like add on top of um, super strong uh, cyber security and technology advancements because you're still gonna be vulnerable at the, the human level so that's why I'm pushing a lot of the employee training and understanding at the human level what your risk assessment and management tools against them. Set that base first and then ensure everything on the software side, it, it is there coupled with training. And always backup and recovery. That's wonderful advice for everyone else because that's something that we learned. Hey, ransomware happened. Let's reach out all of our supervisors and tell them we need to do X. Do we have their phone numbers? Yes, it's in the software. It's in the hard drive that we cannot access. So we didn't have the redundancy of the recovery and the data backup. So City has learned much better for cloud integration and redundancy service to back it up. So that's the tech side that you, you need to do. Yeah, you know, it's important to bring that up too, because we always talk about learning from others, right? And so, uh, you know, how, I mean, how can you learn from previous experiences? And then how can you learn from others? So sharing this is letting people learn from you and learning where you've seen some of those pain points 
We also talk a lot about people, process, and technology. And a lot of it, you know, it's it's not always the technology, right? We have that. I think we have a good handle on it. And so, um, but it's the people and the processes. Because even with your example where you said backup, right? That's a process that maybe could have been optimized. And with people, you talk about how education and continual education is a really core part of security because unfortunately, you know, criminals will be criminals and they're going to find any way that they can to penetrate and attack a system. So you've you've felt that pain and <laughs> experienced it and hopefully will never have to again. I hope so. And for example, when that happened, you cannot stop providing fleet maintenance services, for example. And if you run on field of fleet maintenance software that we cannot access, but you still need to repair cars. So you have to have some sort of a, a coup plan, a continuity of operations. That's what the term is. Um, ensuring that if something happens, that you can still um, work and uh, plan for that incident response. What we always say is hope for the best, prep for the worst, having a well-crafted incident response plan for each department. If X happens, how are we going to continue to provide services? If a breach occurs, the government can swiftly mitigate the change while providing services so you don't come to a full halt. So, I mean, obviously you prepare for your response, but you have to be planned and constantly doing tabletop exercises about if, if snow happens and then we can't access route control system. How are we going to communicate with the people that are um, making sure that the plowing? How are we going to coordinate with the radio systems? Like you have to have all of these um, systems in place and constantly revisit them. Just not the 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 best firewall and then everything is done. No, that's that doesn't usually work that way. Training and being prepared is very important. Yeah, and we hear a lot about just even upcoming security philosophies like zero trust and stuff like that really help. Don't trust anyone anywhere with anything. <laughs> For sure, I think that is kind of where we are. But I think this is kind of really helpful. I mean, obviously, we touched a lot of different topics here, uh, you know, in terms of covering technology and sort of its impact on uh the public sector and i think you know that is really key to for anybody who's listening they may be you know, folks may be listening from any agency we have people listening from all around the world and there may be smaller uh you know issues here that uh, people need to to be concerned about so may, maybe any sort of words of advice or thoughts you might have maybe for maybe even smaller city agencies who may not have even the resources baltimore has things that that they should be aware of in terms of uh automation, the things we talked about, AI, uh, cyber, any of the stuff we talked about to give them some some advice from your perspective? Well, I, I think that the, so I'm not going to state the obvious that you, you should do everything that you can do to ensure your data and your systems are safe and secure. So whatever your um, level allows you to do at 100% to, to ensure because the cost on the other side is much greater. So you have to understand the cost of not investing into your cybersecurity. So it needs to be a part of your planning process and, and maybe start with a really uh, high level risk assessment at where your vulnerabilities are and you don't need to do everything all at once. Um, you could do very small low hanging fruit is ensuring that even with your current data system, your vulnerability is exactly the same as a high level security system at the employee level. So that's a very low cost opportunity to train and ensure that 
nobody's going to be a victim to a phishing attack and allow some virus to enter your system because once it's in it, it doesn't matter how sophisticated. So those are the things that if you're not doing out there and then you're a smaller um, jurisdiction and you don't have the funds, there are really low cost solutions to develop um, off the shelf products that you can start at, at least educating your employee base. So that's, that's just number one. And in terms of, um, the, what, what's about to come uh, for for the, the future technology type type of stuff is um, I want to be, be a little bit of a specific um, on on the the DGS side because we talked about how we um, deal with fleet and facilities and energy. So, uh, in order to be planned, you, you need to have data and it needs to be accessible. It needs to be secure. And we always say, not me, but I've adapted this terminology from you're not going to be able to manage if you're not measuring it. And anything data about your um, inventory and asset base is going to be quite, quite important. For us in the city of Baltimore, we have gone through extensive work of assessing the conditions of our facilities. But most people, when they do these types of assessments, they do it in paper, meaning they do an assessment five years ago, it doesn't age. So if they need to look at it, they, they need to, to pay a, a vendor again to do the same thing. There are softwares out there that allows you to be able to put these information, like a building assessment in it, and it ages for you. So you can future plan. You can say, okay, the conditions of my facility is X. These are the next things that's going to fail based on schedule. It can predict the cost of that. And then you can say to planning department, your budget bureau to say, I am responsible for X many rec facilities. And these are the roof costs going to be coming down the pike over the next five years that we need to start planning for. So um, adding and breaking your, like adding more data and then getting rid of the silos in between really helps you to, to plan long-term. And all of these in the government space where we are dealing with finite resources Planning, planning, and planning is, is the way to get out of there. And you cannot plan if you do not know what you're sitting on and what's going to happen. So wherever you can start, better analog, automated, digitized, start collecting your data and improve that. If you're doing one, bring it to two. If you're doing two, bring it to three. But never give up. Constantly collect data. And the more you collect data, the more tools are coming to help you at a low-cost, no-code, low-code way for you to make sense out of it. So upskill your people, start now, because hiring them individuals is going to be a lot more expensive. So the training your folks there is going to be great. And in the future, what we do with them, I would like to do predictive maintenance analysis the, because, you know, I would like to put data loggers in cars that it could tell me something is going to fail before it fails. So I can plan for it, right? I can, again, optimize my routes constantly based on using internal things in traffic lights to see, okay, this route collected this much time and this many tons of trash, constantly iterate. Um, smart building solutions. We're all hybrid now and buildings cost money. So there's an incentive for every jurisdiction to, to scale down their score footage because it takes operating dollars and capital dollars into the future. So if you can really measure and understand your utilization of your space, there are opportunities to scale down. What happens when you scale down is you're now taking an asset that takes money out of your pocket and then turning into a tax base if a developer takes that asset from you, now it's generating revenue for you. So you can take those dollars and really improve the spaces for your people. And in today's world, energy operations, it's quite important, the energy consumption analysis and optimization. I mean, I'm very excited about what generative AI can do for us in the future 
hopefully analyzing patterns in across the city buildings, suggesting optimizations. This building doesn't need to start cooling at 4.30 because it's a peak hour. The grid's going to charge you more. So if you shift off for 30 minutes and then start staggering employee start and stop times, you may really get a lower price from the grid because you're not using it at the peak time. So we can talk a lot about it, but you, you really need to, to think um, think all of the technology that is not here, but is about to come and how, how you can leverage it for you. Yeah, we always say think big, start small, and iterate often, right? So, I mean, obviously, Wonderful. Have, yeah, have your big plan in <laughs> can mind. Can I steal then, that? Can... Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to say it. And that's exactly well, what... Well, you can put a little source if you want. Sure. But no, <laughs> I will, I will, definitely, definitely. This has been such an incredible podcast. And we like to wrap our podcasts up with the same question to all our guests because you're able to bring your own unique experiences to this and to the response. So what do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? Well, in my opinion, uh, I'm really excited about the the use of um, AI and uh, the, if we can secure it nicely so that we we are not vulnerable to a, a site that we put our critical information for AI to help us. So if we can compartmentalize and build our own tools with these language learning models, LLM, uh, large language models, I believe they're called. Um, I'll, I'll give you one example. Most of the time, we do either some sort of a performance-based budgeting or some sort of an outcome-based budgeting to understand where the resources needs to go because going back to our earlier conversation is the resources are finite and everybody's competing with it. So most government requires some sort of a, a text to be submitted as a proposal. And some governing body now needs to read them and then figure out where those um, proposals might align. But the number of proposals and the, the, the ability for groups of people to be able to consume what is in it and defining alignments where it could cross um, departmental impact, what cost savings and efficiency. I believe that understanding the text and then using some sort of a support technology to be able to really interact with them to see, okay, I have gotten um, proposals from sheriff's department, state's attorney's office, police and fire, and I want to understand where some of these proposals in terms of budget asks and then staffing that could further this pillar for this administration. And that type of analysis uh, that we could do in the future, if we, if we start thinking about taking our information from our user agencies in a format that we could use um, some sort of an AI deployed to it, again, it will cut down a lot of the gathering time for very tight budget cycles and then use that time to real decision-making in front of the, the, the mayors and county executives to see just like there's an alignment in here. So I'd rather fund these two proposals together. And that that would really synergize this, this initiative that could reduce crime or fight fires better. Right now, again, going back, if every proposal is a data, it's in a silo and the, the visibility across all of them, how they can interact together to be more cost savings and efficiency and allow us to do sustainable and friendly operations, I see that just like that future is coming by. And I'm actually very excited about it. So I want to be one of the first ones to try and test these new, new technologies to see how we can how we can actually get a hold of it and then use it to our advantage. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. And, you know, we'd love to maybe revisit this conversation in a year and see 
how things have progressed. I would love to. So we'd like to thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an incredible podcast discussion today. Well, I truly enjoyed it. I thank you for inviting me and allowing me to share my experience and my my thoughts with you all. Yeah, and we've loved it. Listeners, if you have as well, make sure to subscribe to GovFuture so you can get notified of all of our upcoming podcast episodes. And also, please make sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to become a member of GovFuture so that you can take advantage of all that our community has to offer, including access to a diverse network of government innovators, opportunities to collaborate with different government agencies, exclusive access to events and resources, and a platform to have a voice in shaping the future of government innovation. You can learn more at govfuture.com slash join, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. We'll also link to our resources page that has been tailored just for you, our GovFuture listeners. You can go to govfuture.com slash resources to check out our resources, including books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.